Is that our uh, intro music, or is that just ambient? That's just ambient. ambient. We're going to have to get rid of that, I think. Cause okay. <coughs> Bob Thiel, emergency. Lament for John Coltrane, man. It's just I feel it. And we're not allowed to have any copyright music on this show at all. I know, right. And so unless we get permission. We'll figure that out, though. Yeah, that'll be that'll be sorted out in due time. I was under the impression that because this is the internet, you can do whatever you want. Right. <laughs> You can copyright is yeah, copyright is 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 a word and a concept that <laughs> I neither agree with nor nor, right. nor wish to adhere to. I neither confirm nor <laughs> deny the presence of copyright and uh, the necessity and relative desirability of intellectual property. Why would you make something unless you wanted to get, give it away? I mean, do they want? Like exposure, right? I mean, Bob Thiel's whatever. I, think I mean, he's dead. Is he dead? I've I've never even heard of him. I've heard the name maybe. Anyway, so Bob it's just Thiel, like I mean, if you are alive, yeah, if you're out there, come on the show, Bob. We, we, <laughs> we would love we, to have you on the show. Bob. We can we can use um, your we can uh, get permission to use your music. We would love to talk to you. I lament for John Coltrane. I'm always down for that. I lament John Coltrane all the time. On yeah. the daily. Uh, did you that church get saved? Was it in danger? It was in danger, yeah. Really? The one in San Francisco. Yeah. It was Are we in doing a podcast? Uh, I feel like we should just record stuff and I get feel used like to we're like doing talking. It. And yeah. then, all right, everybody out there <laughs> in TV land. First off, we apologize for the sounds of our voices. Yes. Um, we I am uh, using what uh, God gave me. And that's all we have, really. And All I have is a voice. And since there is no God, he gave us nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, correct. Yes, the I'd like to he thank gave the us millions to work of uh, d- of bacteria and uh, mitochondria that have brought me to this situation. <coughs> uh, in evolutionary terms, honestly, I feel like I'm really only a microscopic dot in a catastrophic plan designed and orchestrated by a red right hand. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think that's also copyright. I also <laughs> feel like. <if> <laughs> If Nick, Nick Cave can drag if, if you're his listening. skinny, <laughs> bony self all the way over here and be like, Matt, my copyright protections are very important, Matt, then, you know, he's allowed to do that. That's fine. I'm down in the headphones now. I like a little bit. You can't hear yourself. I want it warm. I don't know if I that crackle, warm. though. Is that crackle just it's in the just headphones? Or is that when it goes recording? a little too high up, I think, like from laughter. Or in whatever. the industry, we call that um, clipping. Oh. Yeah. The more you know. <laughs> Uh, Excellent. Okay. We. I. I was asking a not if she thought that I should do like. What? How you doing? What the fuck? What you know? Arts fusers. Arts fuse nicks. Arts fuse oh, buddies. We should probably tell people what we're doing here. Arts uh, If you're not into the whole brevity thing. <laughs> into the whole brevity. Damn. Thing. The first. The first Lebowski reference of the show. It's on. It's on. <laughs> <laughs> Took we, a second to kind we, of. Figure we missed out. a high five there. From <laughs> the uh, salubrious and uh, plush but not overly ostentatious conf- confines of the uh, – where are we, Luke? Uh, we are in the uh, fantastic uh, offices of Somerville Media Center. For those of you in the Somerville area, you probably know it affectionately as SCAT TV, Somerville Community Access Television. They are very generous hosts, and they are letting us use their beautiful equipment in their beautiful location. And – we're very grateful, and if it weren't for them, none of this would be happening, so you can also blame them. That's the applause. 
And what we're doing, for those of you who don't know who we are and what's what's going on here, if you haven't turned this off by now, uh, <laughs> we are the doing the first episode of the Arts Fuse podcast. Uh, I don't really know what we're going to call it. Fusecast was my guess. Fusecast. That Fuse does cast. not sound good to me. <laughs> so we'll stick that one back in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's put a pin in that. Put a pin in let's that. Put, let's bracket that. And uh, the Arts Fuse is a um, magazine on the internet. Eleven year old. An eleven year old magazine. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really coming into its own. Um, it's starting to hang out with some of the bad kids though. So we're not super worried as as parents. Tired of having its lunch money perpetually stolen by right. various ruffians, charlatans. And He's really just bullies. doing the sensible thing. Right. And getting himself some bigger, better friends. Getting into fifth grade would be? Fourth Eleven grade. year old is in a is a fifth grader. A fifth grader. Fifth going into sixth. A probably. fabulous grade, I feel <coughs> like. A uh, do- the dawn fifth, of adulthood, yeah, you might fifth say. Fifth was good. That year. That was also a terrible year for me. That was uh that was nine eleven. Ouch. As we were talking about before. Yeah, it's a blow. Um, which, you know, personally wasn't that much of a blow. I guess. If, uh, you want to hear something terrible about 9-11? By all means. Uh, so I have a 9-11 story. They didn't. Uh, well, you. Yeah. Well, yeah, see, no, I was a child and I was right. living in the, the, the metro New York area. So southwestern Connecticut. He is wearing, in fact, a, a hat that would indicate yeah. a preference for a baseball team that is. Not unknown to denizens of LA. Yeah, but they noted them. They can't. Uh, they can't do anything right right now. So we'll talk about them another time when we do our uh, entire uh, three part series on baseball novels. <laughs> the tears that pour from my eyes are reptilian in nature. Talk about how the uh, the ending to the natural in the book form is a lot different than the one in the movie, where. Uh, Things don't exactly go the way you think they do. Fun fact, I actually just wrote about baseball, um, about the movie Bull Durham. It's a great movie. Criterion has just re-released it. The Criterion Collection has put out a, a new version of it, the rollout. That's a Criterion thing? Yeah, as of about a month ago. Huh. Yeah. Uh, it's for another magazine, but it's about <laughs> Bull Durham, and uh, it's, it's Enduring Legacy. And uh, one thing that's really wonderful about that movie, um, just for the record, I think a lot of people will probably uh, feel this, is that um, it's not just a sports movie. It's a movie about, you know, people struggling with uh, maturity and issues of growing up. Yeah. You know? and, and interestingly, it's a feminist film because uh, it's a woman, Susan Sarandon's Annie Savoy, who teaches the hotshot, gawky rookie, Nuke Lelouch, played by Tim Robbins um, in one of his great goofy roles, uh, how to be a better ball player and how to be a better person. I mean, she she educates him. She is in many ways the mentor. So giving her that much agency in a movie about sports, which is a male-dominated mm-hmm. you know context, if anything is, um, is really progressive and very and very feminist and and um, really wonderful, very refreshing. So I, I was just uh, writing about and that. She's sex positive. And she's totally sex positive. She doesn't apologize. Which we are also on this show, by the way. This is a sex yes. positive show. Absolutely. Don't worry about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. If you were worried. <laughs> yeah, in case anyone out there was concerned, uh, we are 100% in favor of uh, owning and uh, 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 not apologizing for uh, your desires and your body's needs. Um, but yeah, don't apologize. No. And so I just wanted to add Unless that. Unless you did something a, wrong. A marginal gloss. Well, uh, clearly, uh, we do not support... Uh, any kind of um, illicit or uh, unconsensual uh, uh, 
just so. move on. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut that out in the edit. So nine uh, eleven, you were in you were in Metro New York, and Nobody's growing up perfect. as a Yankees fan uh, in the nineties was a good thing uh, because they won all the time. No, nobody's perfect. And uh, when they didn't tell us what happened, but they did tell us there was a plane crash in New York. How old were you at the time? I was ten or eleven. Wow. Okay. It was the same age as the Arts Fuse to kind of tie right, together, right? Yeah. yeah. And they told us a plane crashed, and my first thought was, I really hope it wasn't the Yankees' plane. That's bad, right? The loy- <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, a child's loyalty is, is the thing divine. Uh, yeah. Um, right, the Bronx Bombers all go down in one sort of day the music died situation. Yeah, it would have definitely been a Buddy Holly situation. Tis a consummation did not wait to be wished for I who Think grew about up who would have been lost though. Joe Torre, Derek Jeter, Paul O'Neill, Bernie Williams, Jorge Posada, Andy Pettit. Uh, was Clement Maller up there? Was he on the one? Can't remember. Mm, no, he was a sock. In 2001? Oh, in 2001 maybe mm. not. Growing up in the 90s he definitely yeah. was. Well then he anyway. He choking in the postseason by the way which is very <laughs> embarrassing and annoying. He did have his best days in Boston. He did. He did. Mostly uh, mid-80s, I would say. Late 80s? Yeah. Yeah. 86, 88? Anyway, the Yankees went on to um, screw that one up in Game 7 of the World Series and lose it to uh, a bloop single because they brought the infield in. And so that, as I explained to you earlier, was the beginning of uh, chronic depression and the end of my life and uh, childhood uh, innocence. So you combine both the era that we live in currently, which is massive state surveillance, never-ending war, uh, perpetual jingoism, xenophobia, et cetera, et cetera, uh, as well as understanding that not only can the Yankees lose World Series, but they will, and they will do it often. I personally thought it was a little weird how the Patriots won in football at the year of nine, the year after. Well, the, see, I believe the, the narratives and like storybook endings and stuff. So I was like, it only makes sense that the Yankees would win the World Series. That's kind of what everybody said. Yeah. And then I thought, well, okay, well, the Patriots are The weeping willow softly sway above me. Let me daydream The world's a Maytime matinee So lovely Let me daydream I lie and watch the clouds roll by They're painting pictures in the sky I'm painting Find the highest hill of valley filled with flowers. It will be heavenly to dearly dally there for hours. Is dreaming such a crazy thing? How can it be a crime in springtime? For me to dream my life away, I'm lazy, let me daydream. 
figure and they were blurring out the pot leaves on his baseball caps in the videos and stuff and like you know it was he was really like treated as if he was some kind of um menace to society <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah a boy as it were in the hood and now he's yeah he's coaching pop warner he's got like a game show a lot of those guys grew up though yeah ice yeah. cube absolutely you know right he's right. a he's a he's a family man now Sure, and he's Family making those movies. goofy movies. Goofy movies, yeah. yeah. He cashed in too, right? Dr. Dre's got the Beats headphones. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Right, and that's kind of the thing too with sports. Like when you think of it, it's supposed to be about the love of the game, and yet the fact that they're saying, "Oh, you're doing this because you love sports," right, is kind of how they get you. Mm-hmm. That's how they m- get you thinking about it as um, as a uh, as a ploy, as a as a bait to dangle, you know. Um, so Let's walk this one back. Yeah, <laughs> we've uh, we've we've managed to, I think, get comfortable with microphones. I think so. Um, and we need to explain a little bit more, a little bit about who we are, what we're doing, what the fuse is. Uh, like we were saying, magazine based out of Boston, uh, been around for eleven years, and it's uh, really, really good quality reviews. Um, short think pieces, stuff like that, about books, films, visual arts, television, theater. Um, it's probably the only magazine that you can probably go to and get consistent and uh, um, informed criticism about the Boston jazz scene as it oh yeah as it dies right before our <laughs> literally yeah, right before our are, are closing. Riles closed um, a month ago mm-hmm. or a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, R.I.P. Riles. Um, there was an article about that in the Fuse not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and theater. There's a couple really good theater critics that uh, we have, particularly our editor in chief, who we will be speaking to later on in the program, uh, Mr. William Marks, uh, and he can give us a little bit more background about what the Fuse is and what he thinks the importance of arts criticism is, and give us his take on what uh, a piping hot take, I should I should say about what the state of criticism is, particularly in the Boston area, and why it's important, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, I think one of the things that we want to do for this, though, is that, yes, this is this podcast is going to be uh, hosted by myself. They don't even know our names, Matt. They don't? No. They don't even know our names. I would yet. assume a familiarity along yeah. the level of, you know, uh, somebody who uh, you've spoken with every day. I uh, am. Uh, I am Lucas Spiro. I've been writing for The Fuse since uh, 2016. I mostly cover books, so uh, this show is probably going to have, if not entirely be about sports, then (laughs) it will be (laughs) probably biased towards literature a little bit. Uh, I actually don't even know if we plan to talk about literature all that much today, but maybe we will. Um, uh, I am a failed writer. Um, I am a lazy son of a bitch, Um, and I'm incredibly stupid. So anything I say uh, should and will be held against me. 
that's that's Matt just banging his head against the wall. Yeah. Fire back. <laughs> Smoke good. Smoke good. <laughs> Frankenstein is essentially my power animal. Um, your power animal? My power animal. Not yeah. Your spirit animal. What's your spirit animal? Frankenstein's your power animal. Spirit animal would definitely be the gentle raccoon. Oh, okay. The fair. noble raccoon. The Mr. noble Mr. Raccoon, raccoon. Yeah. Whose name in Latin? which i do not know means thieving fingers that's what he's got yeah that's what they are yeah um i should probably introduce myself yes who um, are you and what are you doing here? my name is matt hansen i am a staff writer for the arts views um i have been writing for them since 2014 i think um i'm also the advertising coordinator here so if anybody out there is interested in um Putting an ad up for the Arts Views, uh, we have very uh, reasonable rates, and we have a pretty dedicated l- listenership, which will uh, probably disappear by the end of this podcast. I don't think uh, we have any listenership. Uh, well, we don't have any listenership. We have a readership. We do. We I'm are read. We are in, in podcast. Read by dozens. Read by dozens. Yes. Yeah. Actually, well, I was just talking to Bill. Actually, you know what? We roughly get about a thousand hits a day to our online articles. That's not bad. Not bad at all. I and don't actually don't know if that's good or bad, but I mean, I think it's pretty solid. And then forty thousand um, uh, readers per month, so it's like on average about a thousand a day, and then obviously that can fluctuate. And then about forty thousand readers per month. So we should probably assume that forty thousand people are listening to this. Basically, it's the size of like a reasonably small town like or a really big size. college. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so basically, we're like the insane deans that have taken over yes. uh, a small. The University of Michigan. Yeah, right. Go blue. Go blue. Yeah. So uh, we have. So the art. Well, one thing I think that separates the arts views from a lot of the other uh, magazines out there is the fact that we are 100 percent independent. We are uh, fueled entirely by advertisers who like what we do and uh, want to reach out to their um, their uh, potential readership and, and, and audiences through us uh, and through the generous support of people who contribute. So we're completely reader-funded. You um, can go to artsviews.org mm-hmm. to, uh, to learn more about that. And we have fundraisers basically every uh, few months just because we have to make sure that we keep uh, the Arts Views vital and uh, well, pay our writers and to pay writers, which honestly, I mean, there's something about like the fact that it's writing that people sort of feel like they don't, you know, writers shouldn't be paid. It's kind of an old joke, you know, why do writers get paid anyway? Mm-hmm. Everyone knows you do it, uh, you know, for for not with uh, dreams of wealth in mind, but at the same time, like you know, writing is work, writing is labor, especially this kind of writing because it is criticism. It's not. Um, content writing, nothing wrong with content writing, but it's not, it's writing with a specific uh, analytical purpose. And the idea is to be um, as independent minded as possible. And when Bill comes on, he'll talk a lot about how um, arts criticism and the art of arts criticism has been depleted in the past you know, few generations in the sense that a lot of places want promotional uh, writing. They want uh, people to be, um, sort of signing on to the latest fads or the latest um, uh, topics and hot takes and so forth. And one of the reasons Bill uh, created this magazine so many years ago is because he wanted an independent place for critics and writers to be able to say what they feel without having to respond to market pressure or to um, editorial um, 
um, uh, dictation. And so it's, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to weigh in on uh, pressing matters in the arts community right now, which honestly can never get enough um, solid analysis. I mean, you know, the arts community is constantly uh, trying to grow and gain readership, and there's amazing things happening in the city. There's lots of different places you can go to find anything you're interested in. And I've always felt like, you know, after the, especially after the Phoenix, uh, the Boston Phoenix, you know, went belly up, uh, we need something to pl take that space, and the Arts Fuse is really working hard to try to be that magazine. So I, we're glad that you're listening, and, and we hope that you keep listening and keep reading us. And part of what we want to do here with the um, podcast is kind of highlight what we've been writing about recently and what some of the topics are that are uh, interesting our writers in the magazine. We have people on from the Boston area specifically, um, but we're not going to totally limit ourselves to that either. Um, the Fuse does cover um, books, films that are out there on a national level, you know, international stuff. Um, and we... Uh, we'll hopefully maybe one day get a series of guests. People come in, talk to us about stuff, uh, specifically things that have been made, created, and are broadly understood as art. Um, might talk a little bit about politics, social issues, how art relates to that stuff. Um, but we're also going to highlight, you know, the marginalized voices, as they say, in the Boston area. Talk about specifically, you know, maybe how plays get produced independent plays, struggles that people that are uh, trying to do things independently, struggles that they have to get their stuff read, produced, put on, uh, books published, uh, breaking into the industries, blah, 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 all that stuff, and maybe help some people out along the way. Um, yeah, I mean, when I was talking to Bill, he was saying that one of the things he really likes about The Fuse is that in a lot of cases, you know, we're, we're the people who will review stuff that doesn't have enormous backing in terms of publicity or Right, everybody that gets reviewed in the New Yorker just has a cousin that works there, by the way. So oh, yeah. Exactly. It's the same trash, cousin. Trash magazine, strange. by the way. Oh, there you go. What's what's up with the fiction in the, in the New York? Interesting. Speak more on this, please. It's it's just no good. Oh. <laughs> no, but we'll talk about why the, why the New Yorker sucks another time. Uh, but if you are sick of the New Yorker and the Boston Globe and um, improper Bostonian... Who else? Who else can we? Which list? honestly can't stop trying to sell me stuff I can never afford. They the try to sell you Bostonian stuff. Bostonian is just, oh, look at this new place. You can get scallop entrees for forty-five dollars. Yes, the magazine is free, but nothing is actually free. You're right. the, you're the product. I am the product. <laughs> they are selling me back to me. Right? Do they even do arts reviews in, in the improper there's, Bostonian? There's like usually one review of something, like a book or something, mm -hmm. and then they maybe probably an Dennis interview. Lehane. Right. Nothing wrong with Dennis Lane. No, yeah, peace be upon him. But I feel like in many ways it's like a like a token uh yeah. um approach to uh arts in, in the city at right. at best. The, the 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 Bostonian is trying to sell you a, a Burberry coat or something. Exactly. And they put the the book review in there to to make you think you're cultured. Right, to add a patina of uh, of cultural criticism. Mm -hmm. Where really, honestly, it's... And then it's who saw who at what event. Mm -hmm. I've seen a million of those where it's like a bunch of grinning people wearing expensive clothes, smiling at the camera and talking about how glad they are to be... How proud we are of all of them, uh, you know, at some ridiculous event. And that's not... That's not something the arts use is about. This is about supporting the We are all the arts all the time. All arts, all the time. It's not a who's who. It's not a what's hot around the city, except when it comes to arts. 
um it's not you know restaurant openings and things like that uh it's it's who's writing what you know what kind of plays are being performed what kind of movies are available uh, and that's something that you know really is uh, a vital part of the ecosystem of the city because if you don't know about it then you're much less likely to go see it and if you're less likely to go see it the artist creating it is less likely to be able to you know keep putting it on um, and so we're really proud to be able to bring that to you and we want to keep doing that so that's that's the fuse um, check it out artsfuse.org artsfuse that's A-R-T-S-F-U-S-E dot O-R-G um, pitch us stuff too if you want to be a critic if you think there's something that's being overlooked by mainstream publications, um, if there's a poet out there or a rapper or uh, I don't fucking know any filmmaker, filmmaker, you know, out there that you really think is uh, playwright, not getting their Sorry to bother you. Um, it's still in the theaters now. It's playing all around town. Um, and it basically, this is I reviewed this um, a couple days ago. It just came up on the website. And um, it's the story of, it's an engaging, the headline is an engaging anti-capitalist satire. So I And isn't it time we had more of them? Right. And here, here. And a good thing, too. Um so if you haven't heard, this is uh, a movie directed by Boots Riley, who is the uh, impresario behind the uh, radical hip-hop collective The Coup. 
based in Oakland, who are pretty legendary. I feel like they've been around for quite some time. Yeah, right. Who's great? Yeah. Have you know? Do you know them? I do. General? Yeah. Um, I've heard a few other things. I didn't know the band that well, but I definitely um, liked what I heard. And so this is this is a movie that he that Boots Riley has um, uh, written, produced, and directed. Um, and it's his first film, which honestly is uh, pretty pretty impressive for a f- especially for a first film. And it's the story of a character named Cassius Cash Green, and he's down on his luck. He's broke. He lives in Oakland. He's African American, and he's living in his uncle's um, garage. He's basically like squatting in his uncle's garage. And his uncle's uh, house itself is like you know several months past due and. Uh, mortgage payments so he's kind of at the end of his rope and there's his girlfriend detroit is his kind of support structure and she's a really wonderful kind of vibrant character and basically he is um he's trying to find some kind of way of keeping his uh finances together keeping his head above water financially and so he's down to his last pennies and he lands a telemarketing job for a corporation called worry free this is, I think, where we have to issue a correction. I don't think he works for Worry Free. I think Worry Free is the client of Worry the telemarketing Free company. Worry Free is the client for. of the telemarketing company yeah. that he works for. He Same. gets a job with a telemarketing company. Who has who who pushes products and the services of a company called, called Worry, Worry Free. Yeah. yeah. So he's working for a telemarket. Strictly speaking, he's working for a telemarketing company that is employed by a, a shady corporation called Worry Free. Um, and, and just how shady? Oh, shady indeed. Shady indeed, my friend. Um, it's it's interesting. It's a wonderful parody of sort of like the end point of the neoliberal uh, sort of lifestyle consumption, um, uh, corporatized uh, approach to, to, to work and, and living that, we, that we're kind of seeing everywhere. Worry-free is... A nightmarish version of the pull yourself up by your bootstraps uh, neoliberal economic discourse. Um, Does it really pull you up by the bootstraps though? Because it kind of it like coddles you like a child, you know, and says like, "Oh, right. please, we are the ones that that um." Right, we've got people maybe coming in. Do we have friends? No. Um, okay. This is a this is an open door policy too on this show. If you just want to come by. Yeah, and say hello. If you feel like if you're in the neighborhood and you're getting donuts or something, right? Swing by and 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 we'll donuts chat. while you can, because that Dunkin' Donuts is going to get knocked down, and I think they're going to put luxury apartments there. But uh, but yeah, I don't even know if they want people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps here necessarily at Worry Free. I think Worry Free is the all you need is the corporation because all there is is extracting uh, uh, profits and, and value exactly. from, from your labor. Um, yeah. and, and part of the way they pitch the. Part of the part of their sales pitch is to say, "Hey, are you sick of worrying about paying the rent? Right? Are you worried about economic anxieties? Well, if you work for Worry Free, you'll have a place to stay and food to eat, and you'll have a job for life." Which is an effective pitch, right? Right. Except when they show the uh, actual set setup at Worry Free, you get basically like a military bunker style of life and a sweatshop right. uh, style. Of job, so it's sort of this interesting kind of parallel between you know what um, a lot of uh, um, sort of like work life sort of balance uh, uh, operations are, are you know are parodied in that. What I like about it is how it both represents, or it it 
it's a criticism or a critique of both the company town mm -hmm. from back in the day, mm -hmm. as well as our new version of the company town, or as I like to call it, neo-feudalism, uh, where uh, you're, you know, at Google or one of these giant, you know, Silicon Valley techno-utopian bullshit places where they put everything that you could possibly need in your lifestyle inside of the workplace right so that you never leave so it could be your um uh you know your ping pong ping pong tables and your food and your karaoke yoga right. mats and whatever bring else your pet to work bring your pet to work child daycare which like i mean sounds wonderful sounds good except nothing outside the company everything right. inside the company and uh who said that muslim yeah right no that was yeah um, that was uh that was that's uh, what you're going for there right exactly yeah. No, I, right. I, I, yeah yeah i, I know a nothing Mussolini outside quote. the state yeah. nothing everything inside the state there's a totalitarian quality to it and 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 boots riley's script um which i want to talk about really quickly is um very akin to that is very is very attuned to that and what's interesting too i mentioned this in the review is that you know his script was written many years ago and he couldn't get any funding for the film. This was like around uh, 2010, 2012, I think. And he couldn't get any funding for the film. He didn't get any backers for it. So he literally just wrote the screenplay, gave it to Dave Eggers, and um, the author of uh, Heartbreak from Work is Factory of Genius and one of the people who was behind McSweeney's, um, the uh, uh, internet magazine. And uh, uh, Dave Eggers loved it. And said this is the best script I've ever read. Published it through McSque McSweeney's without actually having any kind of film deal or anything like that. It was just a self-published script. So, you know, how many times does that happen? And so, anyway, the script was floating around for a really long time. And the movie just came out this summer. So it's a script that had been uh, mulled over for quite some time. It's a really well thought out plot, really well thought out script. And what's interesting that I thought was that he even says at a couple points... Different people are saying, you know, we've got to make America great again, which, of course, has been used uh, a time or two in uh, certain. Who says that? Uh, golly, I can't think. Uh, Mussolini, was it? Uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I'm not really sure. Um, but uh, somebody with an interesting hairdo uh, says that quite a bit. And so what's interesting is that people assume that that was a reference to the current president, but it was written in the la during the last administration. So pretty far-sighted for him to have come up with that, you know, before it became a mainstream phrase. And so um, this character Cash, he becomes a telemarketer uh, to uh, um, to basically make some kind of money cash. And, uh, and he's, he's only raising money selling uh, access to worry-free, which is a business that clearly resembles a, a prison. And so one of the things that interested me specifically... And slavery. Right, exactly. It's, it's basically neo-slavery. It's, it's, Which it's is what the prison system is anyway. Right, right, right. It's the overlap between the industry and the, and the incarcerated. Incarcer this is an anti-prisoner show. Right, we are. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are against in incarceration. I am opposed to Jim Crow, new and old. Um, and so what, what interested me specifically about this movie, what I, where, I, where I felt like it really hit home for me, was the fact that he works in a call center in a telemarketing office. And um, I, uh, gentle listener, I, I have spent more time in uh, telemarketing call centers than I, even I care to mention. Uh, I am a grizzled vet of this kind of um, 
space and uh i really was struck by how well he captured the life of a of a call center it's pretty spot on marketer. i really thought you've done a little bit of it too yeah we 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 worked at the same place for a little while shilling for uh shilling for uh a shitty political party hawking uh democratic uh participation right which which for our sins there is a special place in hell for us <laughs> it's just walter mondale poking you with a pistol <laughs> Adlai Stevenson, uh, you know, to, uh, testifying for the dam. So, um, right. And so he really captures the fact that, you know, it's – so the the telemarketing firm itself is working for the worry-free. And so it's it, the people at the end of it are this enormous, shady, um, quasi-fascistic, feudalist co- corporation. And then the f- telemarketing gig itself – has this kind of um, Sisyphusian quality in the sense that everybody in that office is calling every day, working really, really hard just to make ends meet, to sell, sell, sell. And the more they can sell, the more they have the opportunity to survive, to bring some money in. But the problem is, of course, and Boots Riley is a um, committed uh, radical critic and radical artist who really does know his stuff. I've listened to some interviews with him, and he's uh, extremely well-versed in uh, in Marxist critiques and um, anti-capitalist theory and you know it's not just that they're working for the shady company but it's also the form of work that they must do is as, as telemarketers is itself a treadmill and I've heard so much there's some scenes where um, some of the um, uh, uh, managers and kind of sales uh, representatives give these kind of pep talks you know to the people on the floor sitting through those are horrible sitting through those are yeah just a donkey ride to hell and it's it's interesting combination and he really captures this riley spent a little bit of time as a telemarketer himself and um he really captures how there's a combination of sort of carrot and stick right threat and optimism it's okay keep selling guys because you can really be you know the best in the office you can move up to power caller you'll be a power caller right which is a whole nother thing uh but at the same time there's also this sense of if you don't sell enough you know you're going down we will have to fire you etc etc and so it's like you know the combination of you can do it you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps and on the other side is do or die if you don't make it we have no pity for you uh, which is very true to life. Trust me on that. Um, and uh, so I've been in plenty of, the, as I write in the review, I've spent t- plenty of times in those rooms listening to those speeches. And I can say from experience that Riley's surreal parody of the schizophrenic world of telemarketing is on point. So what's the interesting twist is, is that Cash um, is, uh, he needs to, su- so he's wary of the whole situation, but he's he's stuck and he, he needs to succeed. And one of the older hands at the office, played by Danny Glover, tells him, oh, no, you've got to use another African-American guy. Tells him, oh, you got to use your... For those of you who didn't know that Danny Glover was black. Right, yeah. <laughs> Just in case... Uh, well, I wanted to highlight that because it's... it's you'll see why in a second. Um, uh, is Danny Glover black? Yeah, no, he's black. Um, but uh, he tells he tells I'm Cash, not black, I'm Danny Glover. <laughs> and I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> Um, he tells him, no, 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 you've got to, listen, young blood, you've got to use your white voice, which is, uh, has an interesting, um, uh, insight in and of itself. Um, these voices are not unlike the ones you might be hearing right now, but in the movie it's, it's done by, uh, uh, David Cross 
is the comedian who um his voice is the dubbed in white voice that dubbed Dash poorly uses. which is hilarious yeah dubbed badly at that um which kind of has this like sing-songy like ned flanders yeah he's, he's he's really nasally and like really like unsettlingly pleasant right but like yeah right right uh, and um and that is what kind of and the, the idea is that you have to sound like you're um, not worried about money and that you're not worried about, um, you know, any kind of economic struggle that you're just yeah, happy. He says uh, you have to talk like all your bills are paid, that you have plenty right. of money, that you're going <laughs> right. to jump into your Porsche when, when you get off this call and drive away or something like that. Right. Exactly. And at least projecting the, the sense mm-hmm. of like being totally on, 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 on board. Which we, of course, have uh, no truck with in this podcast. <laughs> we are desperate in every way. and uh, Oh, yeah. yeah. But we've also spent most of our lives attempting to avoid work <laughs> at, <laughs> at all times. And at the end of those days has become the podcast. Yep. Um, and so, luckily, Cash uh, cashes in. And his supervisors are thrilled. He's very excited. And he becomes a power caller. He gets to take the elevator instead of taking the stairs like the rest of the suckers. And the power caller uh, suite is of unimaginable luxury and um, is uh, completely over the top in terms of uh, pampering and uh, ego boost. Uh, meanwhile, though, his fellow uh, telemarketers in the in the bottom floor are kind of sick of the way they're being treated, and they want to be given um, more representation within the workforce. And they start to decide to um, to strike and to unionize. Mm-hmm. So the problem for Cash is, is that he's already succeeded in this way, in this sort of kind of um, morally dubious uh, uh, fashion, and um, and he has and he has to kind of cross a picket line to. Yep, he becomes a, a no good scab. Right, says I'm with you in spirit, but uh, I can't. Uh, I gotta make all this money, and it's actually all not that bad. You know, it's a, it's a good company, even though it's kind of weird, blah, blah, blah. Right. Makes all these different uh, excuses for himself so he can have that money. Right, right, right. And that's sort of a lot of the um, the, uh, the plot uh, tension. And so as he progresses in the company, he starts to uh, get invited. I thought one of the funniest scenes in the film, I mentioned this in the review as well, uh, is when he's invited to the CEO's party. CEO's kind of this combination. Army Hammer, yeah. Army Hammer, played yeah. by Army Hammer, yeah. His um, name is uh, Steve Lift? Lift. Steve Lift. Yeah. Yeah. And he was chosen specifically for that role, Army Hammer was, because he's got this kind of like Son of a lovable frat right? boy. Her Army Hammer is? Is he? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't yeah. know enough about Army Hammer. Yeah. but If, uh, you're, if you're listening, Army Hammer, yeah, if you're out send there, us your bio. Right. I'd love to, I'd love to know your representation. Uh, he plays what you call uh, like a, a Zuckerberg mixed with Musk, definitely kind of a Musk type. You think so? Yeah, I because, thought that was fair. Because and I guess Zuckerberg too, because yeah. they're out there just like shielding themselves, saying like, "Oh, we're gonna save the world," and right. you know, we're doing everything great, and we've got all these great innovations, and they nobody has any definition for innovation. You know, they're they're iterating, they're innovating, and they're. Ideating. Ideating. Oh, God, I hate these words so I know, much. I know. <laughs> oh Those meaningless little buzzwords yes. that kind of, you know, and, um, hum like gnats in our ears. They're uh, perpetually optimizing. Right. Actionable things. Uh-huh. Oh, dear God, it's yeah. disgusting. It's awful. And I refer to it as a new money tech bro type. Yeah, that's so exactly what it is. Um, this is, this is uh, 
a certain aspect of that. And so, um, so the thing with Cash is that he comes to the party and he is the only black dude there. And so at one point, Lyft and the and part of the aspect of this character, part of the like uh, 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 quality of the society that um, that Riley's making fun of is the fact that the tech bro dude doesn't see himself as an oppressor and exploiter he sees himself as like a cool oh yeah like open-minded this, this is what makes it so perfect is that lift says to cash no 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 i'm not crazy well when this, this is the major twist at the end we're probably just gonna we should just spoil it right no 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 i no? didn't spoil it in the review i i think it's way better not to spoil ah uh, but I, oh, there's geez. a major plot twist kids i'm telling you this is gonna be yeah it gets it gets insane it gets pretty darn surreal and um and so Steve Lift, though, when he's explaining it to, to Cash, he says, "I wish you'd seen the promotional video first. <laughs> you know, it would have mm-hmm. it would have made it so much more better." Mm-hmm. And uh, and it, he says, "I'm not crazy here. I'm actually just, uh, you know, this this is completely rational. And this is the way that capitalism always sort of propels itself by saying that you know, this is rational uh, actions. Everybody's a, assumes everybody's a rational actor right. engaged in a free market of ideas and objects and goods and blah blah blah. And any kind of thing that you can do and 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 essentially do on the in the marketplace." is rational because people are deciding to do it right. and exchange goods and services. It all makes sense, trust me. Right. Um, which is just so fucking perfect. And yet we have... It's a parody. It's a perfect... Yeah. yeah. And we have massive crises all over the world, um, you know, uh, and immense suffering and misery uh, that sustains this economic system that we currently live in, that we live in currently, and uh, and yet it's completely rational according to your Elon Musk types and your Mark Zuckerbergs. And then so there's a um, there's an aspect where Cash specifically, where his race is exoticized, tokenized. Um, this is a part of my review amid the sparkling white denizens of the ultra moneyed elite. Um, there's a scene where he is playfully asked and then essentially commanded, keyword to to rap. As a it party, was so as awkward. a party trick. It's so awkward, and it's really it's it's awkward and it's and it's it's really funny. Everybody in the in the uh, audience that I was in was watching was laughing with it, um, but it's also it's it's funny in the right way in the sense that it's awkwardly funny. It's awkward for the characters, and it's, you're also laughing because of mm-hmm. sort of how um, how uh, um, uncomfortable it is for the for the people in in the scene. And the thing about Cash is, is that he's like, I don't really rap. I mean, it's not really, I don't know, guys. I'm just not really like a rapper. And this is written by somebody who raps professionally. And he himself, Cash, in the in the in the uh, in the scene, is like, I don't really. This isn't really my thing. And they're all like, No, no, no. Go ahead, do it, do it. Um, you know, it's gonna be great because they just assume, of course, that since he's the black guy at the party, he'll just be ready to bust a rhyme. And. Um, I don't know if I want to give away exactly the the big punchline for that scene, but suffice to say, he sort of finds himself awkwardly uh, conforming to stereotypes. Yeah, I don't know if we can really. I don't know if we can do the. Punchline. I don't want to go ahead and quote it. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. But it's it's he 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 sort of um, uh, haphazardly uh, stumbles into some of the stereotypes that uh, um, that a, a, a rapper might fulfill for a certain kind of moneyed super cool trying to be hip tech bro type and it's a really funny scene um it's a great movie it's a wonderful movie and there's a big plot twist we will not i i don't i, I think it's better not to do spoilers i want to give it away i know i know if i do you too. haven't seen it by now then screw you 
you still have some time. It's still in the theaters right now. <laughs> no, so that's you, what I'm saying. It's like, it's such a big twist. I feel like it's better not to spoil that plot. I think this is actually good because it's kind of building up the suspense. Whoever's listening now is like, what is the spoiler? Suffice to say that Worry Free is up to something uh, transformative. <laughs> Innovative. Innovative. <laughs> they have an innov- oh. they have an innovative approach to uh, Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load sixteen tons. What do you get? Another day older and St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine. I loaded 16 tons, a number nine coal, and the straw boss said, Well, to bless my soul, you load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain. Fighting and trouble are my middle name. I was raised in the cane break by an old mama line. Can't no high tone woman make me walk the line. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. You see me coming better step aside a lot of men didn't a lot of men died one fist of iron the other of steel if the right one don't get you then the left one will you load 16 tons what do you get another day older and deeper in death saint peter don't you call me cause i can't go i To the company store. That's what we're doing right now is we have um, Bill Marks in the studio. Uh, he is our uh, benevolent overlord and benefactor, the editor-in-chief of the Arts Views, the magazine for which this podcast now exists. Um, and he's here to talk to us about uh, sort of what the Arts Views is, uh, how, we got star- how we started it, why he started it, and all that good stuff. And I'm going to let uh, Matt Hansen actually take the lead on this one. So go ahead, Matt, All and right. ask Bill some questions. Okay, so uh, the po- the uh, the podcast is, is but a day old, but the Arts Views is much older. Uh, 11 years? Yeah. 11 years now. We started in 2007. Right. Wow. Right. Pretty, pretty good run. Which is pretty impressive for uh, a pod, you know, excuse me, very impressive for a magazine which is dedicated to writing and coverage about the arts. There are very few online magazines without a sort of physical manifestation yeah. um, that has lasted as long. There's no print edition. We're all online. There's no print edition, although, frankly, if we ever got enough funding to do it, I've had I've actually had a number of our readers 
say that they would love to get a sort of best of the fuse uh, publication going. In other oh, words, totally. we make a selection of some of the best reviews, commentaries, features, interviews over the past 11 years and right. put, put it into a book. We've had a lot of people writing for the Arts Fuse. Uh, we have over 60 freelance writers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, covering a range of the arts from film, dance, books, visual arts, all kinds of music, jazz, classical music, and so forth, video games, television. We even have some food writing. My idea was to have a magazine which, in a sense, reflected what the old newspaper art section should have been and maybe wasn't, which is a sort of a complete one-stop shopping place for coverage of a number of different arts rather than being like a blog, you know, where you just focused on just writing about film or just writing about books. I wanted to have a wider range because I was partly hoping that people would check out Matt's book review, you know, or your review of the, the El Elvis documentary on HBO, and then turn to other things that are going on in the magazine. So you could sort of do some sort of cross you know, uh, interests, you know, so, oh man, I read that TV review and then I took a look at that book review. I didn't know about that book. Or yeah. I read this review of a jazz CD and man, they also had another review of a classical thing that sounded really interesting. So, you know, it was yeah. one-stop shopping and also an attempt to sort of generate interest about the arts across the board and maybe pique people, people's curiosity yep. so that they would try out something that they hadn't tried out, tried out before. One of the things I've always liked about the Fuse actually is, for those of us, for those of you who are listening who haven't actually looked at it at all, is the fact that it's probably the only magazine that you can actually get consistent, good coverage about jazz music, uh, yep, especially definitely. in the Boston uh, local jazz scene, which um, is sadly disappearing. Uh, I think Riles closed down, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Yeah, maybe a month. So uh, it's just another place, another venue that's that's disappeared. But if you want to find out what's actually going on in the jazz scene in Boston, it's really hard to find that out just from going and reading the uh, Boston Globe or even listening to uh, the local Boston radio. So maybe the Arts Fuse does cover it uh, fairly consistently. I mean, part of why I started the Arts Fuse is because the Globe and other mainstream publications were cutting back on their arts coverage radically. Uh, and what I partly love about the Arts Fuse is not only that we do things that the Globe sh would have done years ago, but we're also doing marginalized or niche art forms and performance spaces that aren't getting any coverage at all. I mean, at the Globe or at other mainstream places, they're, they're obsessed with the number of clicks they get, how many people are looking at, you know, a review of X, Y, or Z. I'm the opposite. I'm going, I, I want to do some, I want to review something no one else is reviewing, a book, a performance, a CD. I mean, I love that. You know, I'm saying no one else is looking at this thing and I can bring attention to it or if it's not particularly good, then at least I can look at it seriously because um, there's more culture. There more, there's more arts going on than ever before, but there's less and less coverage of the arts. There's less and less of a sense of a filter. So everything is being thrown at you. And the only thing that's filtering it is marketing, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whatever word can get through to you through TV or whatever outlets that they can get, you know, that the, the, the places with the most money and the clout can get the word out. And so the places that can't get out the word and don't have clout and don't have a marketing, you know, uh, the budget, underdogs, yeah. the underdogs, they've got nobody to champion. Them. They've got, and, and that was traditionally part of what criticism did. The critic would say, don't go there, don't go to see some stupid musical in downtown Boston, but go here to this little theater that's doing something really interesting and thoughtful and provocative, and you're not hearing about it, but I, the critic, went out, saw it, and I want you 
to share, you know, some of the, you know, the joy, excitement I had seeing the show. So I think that's an important part of the arts use. Yeah, absolutely. And like, let's face it, I mean, you know, we're living in a city that's really well known for intellectuality and for culture and for arts. You know, this is a place that really has a lot of outlets for that and a lot of really talented people. Matt thinks very highly of this town. I love Boston, right? <laughs> Part of this is about is about you know. I mean, I love Boston. Boston. I myself, I'm with Lucas. I mean, I do think that the Athens of America mystique is long gone. I never said Athens um, of America. You know, well, no, but the idea that the, it, it is an intellectual place, but for whatever reason, for example, let's just take something like the Globe. I mean, the Globe had an opportunity to do some really interesting arts coverage over the past few decades, and they've really never been. And and, and when they had the resources to do it, they never really did it. Mm. Why At do you the, think that is? Um, I guess they thought that they were pitching the newspaper to the suburbs. You know, they weren't they weren't pitching the paper to the the intelligentsia. They weren't writing for Harvard and MIT and the universities that were here. They're writing for the folks outside of the city who are, would be coming in to see the big downtown shows that were sort of touring shows, uh, thinking we're about theater here. But that would also include music. They simply weren't writing for the you know sort of the the, the Bostonian urbanites or neither or the intellectuals. Um, it's when in the well, 60s, this is why the Phoenix was around. Yeah, well, too. that's what I'm saying. The Phoenix and the Real Paper, and to a certain extent, the Dig today are around to speak to those sort of the intellectual urbanites, the young, the cool, the hip. But that's never that was never the readership or the audience for the Globe. Hmm. And that's a really important thing. I mean, this city's pretty young. There's always college students coming around. There's you know what I mean. That there's a a constant sort of refresher of the of the market for people who want to see arts here. And if you want to be young, cool, and hip, then read the arts views. Obviously, <laughs> I mean that that went without saying. I I, mean, I, you know. I can't add anything to that. Yes. <laughs> if any young, cool, hip people are out there, um, we'd love to know what it's like to be you. Uh, <laughs> I I hope the word hip is still is that still all Quran or not? I use it, but I, think I don't use think, it or not. I, I think, use it, but I don't. I think everybody thinks I use it ironically. So. Yeah, I personally am a big fan of like old school jazz lingo. I like dig. I say I dig that. And I don't mean it ironically because now everything's ironic. You could also use the imperative, dig this. Dig this. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I just wrote something about a book about uh, the jazz bubble, which was dealing with, you know, corporate influence in terms of how it, it's changing the way we understand the arts, particularly the, the jazz. But. The overall point I'm making is that that is that up now. That's up now. Just oh, put okay, it up. I mean, it's yeah. it's doing very well. I'm getting a lot of interesting. I'm getting a lot of hits on it at the moment, so people are interested. But um, the idea is just that that we're critical, meaning that we are not a marketing service. We're not there to present, you know, the the sunny side up of everything. That doesn't mean we don't do interviews. It doesn't mean we don't do features. Uh, we talked to Toots Hibbert of Toots and the Maytals. It was Great. a wonderful the interview. Legendary legendary there's no critical you know not trying to take toots down mm -hmm. um but there are pieces on the magazine every week which have attitude which have critical perspective that don't necessarily accept art the way that it's being sold to us and offer some sort of an alternative and that's another part of criticism yeah, speak I mean, a little more on that yeah yeah well we, we talked earlier criticism is, is about supporting artists that are overlooked and neglected in other words don't go to this go to that but there is also the aspect of criticism, which I think is an important part of the arts use, which is to, you know, to show us that the emperor has no clothes, that uh, artworks or ideas that are accepted as being valuable. Well, if the critic doesn't think that it's particularly valuable, right, then the critic in the arts use is invited 
to undercut it, to talk about its shortcomings, you know, in a logical, reasonable, thoughtful way. I'm not into, you know, people insulting one another or, you know, or saying that something is terrible. I am. Uh, you know, maybe you are, but I'm Lucas not. I'm, I'm, right. interested in, I'm interested in argument, reasoned argument, but I'm right, definitely right. interested in, um, in attitude and interested in, in, rather than snark, and I'm interested in essentially having a dialogue in which we can start talking about issues of quality, issues of value, you know, the critic is an evaluator. And partly about being evaluators, yes, to say some things are good and why, but you're also going to say why certain things are bad and why. And I particularly love it in the arts views when critics take things that are perhaps overpraised or overvalued and say, no, this is not for me. And here's where I think it's being overvalued and why. And one other thing, since we just talked about my, I did an interview with the author of the book, The Jazz Bubble. And that is that to me, what's going on in criticism today is that the old days, you know, you would either say whether you like something, you didn't like something, and why, right? That 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 degenerated into sort of cons consumer guide. I now think, besides doing an evaluation of the spe specific artwork, you should also start seeing, well, you know, how was this thing financed? You know, who's paying for this thing? Mm. You know, what audience is this is this artwork? Um, being presented to and why and sold to and indeed. sold to in other words I think being aware of the marketing of art I mean one thing that drives me crazy about the New Yorker and there are a lot of things I like about the New Yorker but the writers write as if they don't know that when they're in, when they're reviewing a movie or they're reviewing a book that there's an ad there's a Tiffany's ad sitting right next to, to the review Right. Or when they're writing about global warming and they're going, oh, my God, it's really terrible out there for global warming that there isn't an ad for, I don't know, a Cadillac or a Jaguar full color sitting right next to them. I really think or those, the cable news networks who are or, biggest donors are uh, like gas companies. And stuff. Right. right. I, I think a or critic should be aware. I think you you're know. just going to have to call them. Up. You know, you're going to have to start being aware of that, you know. And going, why is it that the New Yorker is not looking at marginal stuff? You know, why is it the New Yorker is only, and it doesn't need to, you know, it doesn't necessarily take ads from Hollywood or take ads from, you know, sort of the, the big, the big, you know, the big industries, um, or the, but they, you know, at least cultural industries, yet they don't really do a very good job, I think, of looking at, you know, sort of things that people haven't heard of. They're always, they're generally writing about, you know, the mainstream stuff and, I don't, you know, again, I think that's there sort of limitation, editorial limitation, which I think a critic should be aware of. So, you know, I think in that sense, I, my idea of cultural criticism goes back to an old tradition, which people really aren't aware of now, but I wish they were more aware of, and maybe the artists can help do that. And people like H.L. Mencken, Ambrose, I'm talking about American here, Ambrose Bierce, uh, Edmund Wilson, um, Randall Jarrell. I mean, critics who saw arts criticism in a broader, con you know, cultural slash political context. That didn't mean they didn't evaluate art as art, and they weren't interested in the aesthetic. But they they were aware of larger cultural con you know context in which the artwork is to be found, and they wanted to change the direction of the culture. They said this will not do. This poetry will not you know read Auden instead of X, you know, or read this instead of that. Or as Mencken famously said, critics are there to clear out the garbage, right? So that the flowers can bloom, meaning 
people are wasting their money and time on garbage. We can't critics really say this, though, that. about the role of the critic in contemporary society, though, can we? Hmm? We can't really say this, though, about the role of the critic in contemporary society. Though, well, I right? mean, that's, that's the role that I see as the art. Right. I see myself in as the arts fuse playing. And, you know, Gerald Perry wrote a really, it didn't get enough attention, but he wrote a really interesting piece about the death of independent film. Basically saying independent film no longer is independent. It is, it, you know what I mean, it is, it is given up its birthright. Uh, those are the kind of pieces I must admit that I love. I mean, the piece on the on the jazz bubble, where I, I sort of asked this author some, some questions about how corporations were basically not only funding, but shaping, you know, our art and our understanding of what art is, right? I mean, those pieces that, that are sort of, that work in a broader context are some of the most powerful pieces in the fuse and the ones that I really admire and I'm the proudest to you know to post so yeah it's yeah. two ways criticism should support the underdog as you say support the good and the marginalized against the fat cats that are you don't deserve the praise but criticism also has to look at you know be unafraid of being negative in for the sake of guiding the direction of the culture i mean my overall metaphor is is diagnostic it's not moral. I'm not saying that some art is good and some art is bad. I'm saying some art is healthy and some art is cancerous. And I'd say there's a lot of cancer out there, right? And we need the diagnostic uh, skills of critics, right? People like Mencken, Wilson, Jarrell, and there's so many others, Mary McCarthy, I could name a lot of, you know, a lot of wonderful critics who essentially you know, wielded the scalpel well and at least created a dialogue is this healthy or not should the culture be going this way and when you say healthy versus uh cancerous what do you mean by that like go, go into that explanation well that. you know i mean this is going to be sort of based on what every critic you know what every critic <laughs> thinks yeah, yeah so each critic had their own particular way i mean my particular way of looking at it is that criticism should be there to reward art which is you know challenging and has an element of dissent to it in other words art that is giving us some sense, has some meaning beyond entertainment, right? Or beyond simply telling us the conventional, giving us the conventional info or the conventional beliefs, right? right? So to me, the cancer is when we mistake things that are, you know, um, safe for, for avant-garde and experimental, mm. when the critic should be able to help distinguish between the two. Now, here's, here's something that's really new in the is what the critic would say and then say and and even though this artwork is you know marketing itself as being something new experimental different and great it's not i mean that's one way it's when we confuse you know what is actually challenging with what which is not as challenging which is what which to me is partly dangerous and, and cancerous because we think that we're being challenged when we're not right okay because people, I mean, we, we're a society where we like win-win. Right. So we like making a lot of money and being edgy at the same time. Right, right, the arts right. love that. And that's sure. particularly big now. Right. And so to me that, I'm just saying. Which is great when it happens, but. It's great when it happens, but it doesn't happen that often. And right. But people want to market themselves as if they're doing that. And also, I mean, if the arts are about supplying meaning, something meaningful, right, then, you know, 
the critic has to point people, this is a meaningful experience. And there are other experiences that might be entertaining, that might be compelling, but that you leave you somewhat empty. Thank you.